Welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show with Steve and Trish. Trish, we were recording this show on a Monday afternoon, but Monday morning was rough for me today, I admit. So here's my simple question of the day. What is your go-to Monday morning or really any workday morning? What's your go-to beverage of choice? What What are you tapping on Monday morning to help get going? I'll tell you what, I'm coffee all the way, but I recently changed. I found, um, and I've heard this for years, that McDonald's has the best coffee. My dad swears by it, right? So I was at the grocery store and I saw that they had the little K-cups of McDonald's regular roast and their mocha something or another. They're the best things ever, ever. So that's it. That's my go-to right now. It's McDonald's McDonald's coffee. K-cups. Wow. And the K-Cups at home. I would have never thought I would say that. I would that, not have but... known that was a thing. Thank you for uh, enlightening me on this. We have to get, um, us, get us some of this. I have never had a cup of coffee in my entire life. Wow. Okay. So, so Yeah. yeah. Uh, let take, me, let take, me... that, take that, coffee drinker. Jeff Wald is our guest today who's just cl- <laughs> jumped in from the top right row. There. Is, is... So, Jeff, what, no coffee. Is there something in the morning you need? Or are you one of those people who just, you're naturally, you're, you're on the go as soon as you get I up. drink two full glasses of water right when I wake up just to kind of get everybody going. Nice. And then I will drink a lot of water through the day. And I just, I tried a tiny bit of coffee in 1995 and I thought it was the grossest thing I ever tried and I have never gone back and the place I got it at it said the world's best coffee so if that was no good I'm just saying yeah because you figure if the world's best wasn't to your liking then why bother right okay that's what I'm talking about that makes sense so all right I'm just to get this over with quickly and get on to talking with Jeff I'm a straight black coffee guy all the way and I do the first thing I do Jeff unlike you with the two glasses of water I immediately make a giant pot of coffee. Old school oh, though, not the Keurig. I got the pot going, the little filter deal, you know, Mr. Coffee. <laughs> Is whatnot. it a percolator? <laughs> not a percolator. It's not that old, but it's, uh, it's old school. And yeah, it's, uh, it's literally the first thing I do every morning. I do love the smell though. I will give coffee the smell. That smell of coffee through the house. Oh, it's beautiful. So Jeff, we're talking about coffee, but that's not all you're here to talk about. Let me actually welcome you formally to the show. Jeff Wald is our guest today. He's the founder of Work Market, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to manage freelancers, and his company was acquired by ADP. Jeff has founded several other technology companies, including Spinback, which was a social sharing platform, eventually purchased by Salesforce.com. Jeff began his career in finance, serving as managing director at activist hedge fund Barrington Capital Group, a vice president at venture capital from Glenrock and various roles in the M&A group at JP Morgan. Jeff is an active angel investor and startup advisor, as well as serving on numerous public and private boards of directors. He also formerly served as an officer in the auxiliary unit of the New York Police Department. That's pretty cool, Jeff. Jeff is also the author of The Birthday Rules and The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. And Jeff frequently speaks at conferences and in media on startups and labor issues. Jeff, formally, welcome to the show. Thank you you so much for having me. I am great. Awesome. So right off the top, Jeff, let's talk about, uh, maybe for folks who are not aware, we have lots of folks who know ADP, of course, right? We've, We've done... 15 shows with our friends at ADP over the years, but maybe not as familiar with work market in that story. If you don't mind, Jeff, can you give us a couple of minutes about what work market was and how that started and and maybe what it's become? Sure. Well, I started the company 10 years ago. We were very fortunate to raise a lot of venture capital, raised about uh, 70 million in venture 
uh, over its life. And about seven and a half years into its life, we were fortunate enough to sell it to ADP. And so Work Market's been a part of ADP for the past two and a half years. Uh, as you rightly pointed out in my intro, Work Market is enterprise software. So we sell our software to large companies and small companies, but companies that are managing armies of freelancers. And you know, people talk about the freelance economy as this huge new thing. It's not new. It's not, it's, it's, not, it's not some new phenomenon. Companies have been using freelancers for generations. It's just companies that use them at scale have a tough time managing them efficiently and managing them compliantly. They don't know who's where, who's signed what legal agreement, who's working on what, who's good at what, who do we owe money to? And our software simplifies all that and helps them to mitigate the very important compliance risk that comes with the managing a large deployment of freelancers. And did people find their way to work market, both from like the corporates found their way there, but also individuals who are looking for opportunities as well? Was it a two-sided market? So it is certainly a marketplace, but calling the company work market would be mistake number one of about the 10,000 mistakes I made while building that company. You know, it implies that there's a big marketplace that anyone can go to workmarket.com and sign up and create a profile, which you certainly can. But most companies, when they do a deployment of work market software, will create a private environment they're not using us to find workers, they're using us okay. to bring the organization to the chaos that they currently have. They don't need incremental people, they need efficiency and compliance. And so people can certainly go to workmarket.com and sign up and you'll get some jobs, but the majority of work is going into private environments, private talent clouds. And one quick question on, you know, when you're talking about people who are interested in, in using work market, is that typically coming through human resources? Is this coming through, you know, accounting and finance procurement? Like who, who are really kind of it the is, people who are managing this? It is a great question, Trish, and I wish that there was just a simple answer to it. <laughs> it differs company to company. It is one of those things that when you look at all the surveys in the freelance world, how many freelancers do you use? Are you in compliance? How much was your freelance spend? Who manages the freelance population? The number one answer in every single survey to all of those questions and more is, I don't know. I don't know how many freelancers we use. Right. I don't know how much we're spending. I don't know if we're in compliance and I don't know who manages it. And so sometimes it'll be the service organization or operation that will bring us in. Sometimes it's legal because they're very concerned. Sometimes it's HR because they're trying to be a strategic business partner. Sometimes it's procurement. So I wish that there was one persona would have made our sales uh, process much easier uh, yeah. at work market over the years. Sure. Jeff, thanks for that context and sort of that background, right? Because uh, it helps us set up the what we really want also want to talk about today, which is kind of the experiences that you had as the founder of that company and scaling that company, eventually selling that company, and what that taught you or what you learned maybe is a better way to phrase it about work, the future of work, and the relationship between people and work. And so you've, you've got your new book, The End of Jobs, uh, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Let's start with that. Like, what made you decide, hey, it's, I need to write this down and, and sort of share what I'm thinking about how work is changing? Well, I will tell you, Steve, the reason I wrote the book is the reason I do a lot of things, and that is out of frustration. <laughs> I was getting very frustrated with listening to people that were experts for those that just are listening that I just air quoted there air quotes yeah um, air quotes <laughs> uh, experts on the future of work and they would make predictions that I would sit there and be like that's crazy that's never going to be true what how are you making that prediction and it started to get more and more frustrating as work market took on a bigger profile and I go to conferences and I'd be on panels or give speeches and listen to other people give speeches and 
I found that people that made predictions that did not take into account the history of work, the data in the world of work, and how companies engage workers, people made predict that make predictions without those three, their predictions have a very low probability of coming true, and they strike me as kind of silly. Um, I shouldn't say that they'll never come true because you know you never know how things are going to play out. But I got very frustrated, and specifically, the prediction when I founded the company that 50% of the labor force would be on demand by 2020. Founded it in 2010. And I would always go, who said this? Why is everybody <laughs> quoting this? This is mathematically not intelligible. It doesn't make any sense. It will not be 50% of the labor force by 2020. But everybody kept saying it. I said, all right, I gotta start writing to show them why this is ridiculous. And it started morphing outside of just the on-demand world to the whole future of work. I know, Trish, you've always been super frustrated by the future of work stuff, right? I have been. Well, I think, you know, uh, spending a large part of my career as a practitioner, to your point, it's, it's just not true. And so it is frustrating when you're really thinking like, wow, I wish some of these experts, and I'm air quoting, um, I wish they would tell me what I really need to know as an HR leader, as a business leader in my organization. And I felt like there was always a lot of predictions that were just copying other people, um, even after moving into the analyst world um, for the last six or so years, you know, I don't even know if it's a predictions, trends, whatever word, but I do think it needs to be grounded in, in fact and what people are really trying to deal with in the workplace. Um, so to me, that's more what's interesting about future of work is, is how people actually work and what are the real problems and not, you know, these random things. It's sort of like when people said HR is dead 10 years ago, right? It's a lot of hype. A lot of yeah. people talk about it, but it's just not true. So, well, I yeah. will tell you guys a story that maybe you'll appreciate then because I was on a, a virtual <laughs> panel at a conference about, uh, about a month ago. And the question was posed, what percent of the workforce will work remote post-COVID? God willing, we get to that world soon. And one expert, again, air quotes, said, oh, 50% of the workforce. And I kind of put my head in my hands. I was like, oh, really? Um, how do you juxtapose your 50% of the workforce prediction with the fact that only 42% of the US workforce can work remotely? And we are the largest economy in the world, by the way, at 42%, most economies are, are below that. And he said to me, he goes, oh, I, did, I didn't know that. I said, well, shouldn't you though? <laughs> shouldn't you know it if you're gonna open your mouth? Yes. And so I'm not, I don't think I'm gonna get invited back to that. <laughs> that particular group, but that is a point of frustration because to your point, Trish, people are making plans around this. Mm -hmm. People would listen to this expert and they'd start to say, well, 50% is going to be remote. We need to do this, that. No, you don't. Now you might need to make changes for other reasons, but people making plans because experts make predictions, if those predictions aren't based in history, if they aren't based in data, if they aren't based in how companies really engage workers, they just have a very low probability of becoming true. Jeff, I'm glad you mentioned the word history because that leads me into what the next question was going to be for you, which is kind of, if we're talking about how work is going to change or how it is changing, how it's going to change, and how you think it's going to unfold, say in the next, uh, say 20 more years, right? If we want to throw out, we had, work, we had workplace 2020 for a long time, let's say workplace 2040. What are some of the things we can take from or we should take from sort of the history of changes in the labor market? largely technolo technological driven changes, but there's a long history, right, of, of massive change in the labor market. And what can we learn about some of the, the industrial revolution, the computer revolution, et cetera, and how should we think about uh, 
what, where work is going based on our, our, our study of history? I love this question. I love the way you're framing it. The study of history is vitally important because we've been here before. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to play out exactly as it did before, but not looking at how companies and workers and society came together in the face of huge technological change, which led to huge productivity increases, which led to people saying, oh, wow, we don't need that many workers. We're seeing it right now in regards to robots and AI. What about the three other huge step functions we saw before? Mechanization, electrification, and computerization. It will be different this time, but it will rhyme without question. And so each time we see at the beginning, everyone running around going, oh my God, all the jobs are going to go. And each time we see more jobs, we see a higher standard of living, and we see people working fewer hours. Those are very clear three data trends and patterns. But the mistake that I think a lot of people make is to say, oh, well, look, each time it ended up great. So we'll be great this time. I don't think that's true either. Much as I think the doomsdayers are not correct, I don't think those that say, oh, it'll be all great are correct either. Because the other important lesson from history is that those transitions were terrible. Yeah. Terrible transitions, getting to that world of more jobs, of a higher standard of living, of working fewer hours. These are literally times where there is blood in the streets. These are times of revolution and tremendous social disruption. And so we should study that too and know how we can hopefully mitigate it, if not avoid it. Uh, but those are not things that leave me overly optimistic in terms well, of our I'm ability as a society to mitigate the difficulty of the transition. Jeff, do you think it's because we sort of lack imagination? I mean, I almost feel like when I talk to different uh, leaders, whether they be, you know, CEO, CFO, CHRO, you name it, I think that many times it's just easier to iterate on what you're currently doing instead of truly reimagining work. I mean, I know someone like you, you're thinking about that, obviously, with even the title of your book, right? You're sort of like saying it's going to be completely different when it comes to jobs. Well, I think a lot of people struggle with that and they'll just make little tiny baby steps. And, and in times of, of sort of massive change that we're going through, it's like they're not, they're not even able to sort of dream up what it might look like. I just wonder if that's how you see it or am I completely off base? No, I really like the way you guys are framing these questions because it's making me think about things I haven't really pressed and pressed on in, um, in all the conversations I've had about this book. So, I'm not sure if it's a lack of imagination. These are, to your point, big problems. They're very, very difficult. They're really societal problems, not so much company problems or family problems or worker problems. And so how does, how does any one company, how does any one family, how does any one individual tackle that? It's challenging. And the problem from a societal standpoint is that it's the people with the least constituencies, the least power in society that get left behind. It is workers that are in rote jobs that are repetitive high volume processes. And so it's, you need kind of a benevolency in society. And when there's a transition going on, people are very worried about what's theirs and protecting theirs and as well they should, right? You got to protect yourself and your family and your people first, but you need to be able to think about the rest of society. Now, what mitigates that, I hope in this circumstance, is technology, retraining technologies that are coming on stream that make it easier. Because if we really ask society to sacrifice, whether it's higher taxes or some other sacrifice, in order 
for us to not have the existing gaps in society get exacerbated as people get left behind by technological change. I'm not hopeful based on history that society is willing to make that sacrifice. We make that sacrifice sometimes in wartime, but very few other times do we see societal sacrifice at that level. But if we make it easier and it's not that much of a sacrifice, hopefully we can get it done. And there are some training technologies using VR and all kinds of new things that are compressing the amount of time it takes to acquire a new skill, to get into those high paying, high growth jobs that will be created. So we can hopefully help the people that will be uh, left behind as their jobs, which are in low paying and low growth industries are displaced by robots and AI. Yeah, Jeff, as you said, it, these are painful transitions. They have been always, right? Every time there's been a big sort of shift in technologies and the way uh, work can get done and the way, uh, whether it's mechanization, as you talk about in the book, or, or uh, computerization, et cetera. I mean, it's, um, it can be difficult and can be very, very painful. And I think it's really, really important not to forget that, right? It's, it's not all just this wonderful world of AI and robotics. And, and I mean, we're cool. We just... I mentioned to Jeff prior to the show, we just talked to a company, Trish and I, that's using AI to try to figure out how to help people work better. And that's a great thing. But at the same time, you worry a little bit about what it, who or, or, or whom it might displace. Yeah. Jeff, let me take a pause here, Trish, as well. Uh, we got to thank our sponsors, Trish, to make these conversations possible. Uh, I will go first, if that's okay, Trish. Please uh, do. This episode of the HR Happy Hour Show is made possible by our friends at Work Human. The world is watching the leaders of today and tomorrow and modern employees want a workplace where they're respected, seen, appreciated, and heard, and they are demanding it. And employees have a right to a human workplace and you have the power to create one. Thriving organizations like Cisco, Merck, and LinkedIn have realized the immense benefits of putting the human at the center of work. Get your copy of the new book, Making Work Human on Amazon and discover how. And can we also mention their mood tracker? We talked about yes. that before. Um, it's not in our show notes, but we, we do use WorkHuman's mood tracker in our own company, and uh, it's really beneficial. I know they're offering that for free right now, so people can check them out uh, with their mood tracker as well. Um, we're also sponsored by our friends at Paychex, which is one of the leading providers of payroll, retirement, and insurance solutions for businesses of all sizes. While 2020 has challenged HR leaders like never before, they continue to play an important strategic role in the organizations while also fueling efficiencies, building culture, and developing teams with the latest technology, which, I mean, those things don't stop, right, because of a pandemic. If anything, it's probably more important. Um, so right now, Paychex has out their fourth annual 2020 Paychex Pulse of HR survey, which provides an in-depth look at how HR practitioners are actually handling these things right now. So very helpful if you're a practitioner and wanting to just see kind of what the trends are um, during the pandemic and even a little bit before, you can go to paychecks.com slash pulse2020 and download your free copy of their survey and report um, to learn how your peers are handling that. So I've gotten awesome. a peek at that as well. And uh, I've already started quoting it. So it's definitely something uh, if you're a practitioner and wanting to kind of go to your C-suite with some, uh, some trends and ideas, it's a good place to start. Great. Thank you, uh, Trish. Jeff, thanks for hanging out with us. Had two more glasses of water during the, during the reads, which is great. <laughs> Jeff, let's talk about on-demand work a little bit more directly, if you don't mind, right? I follow this really closely. I'm sure you do as well, having lived through it, right, at Work Market for all those years. Um, I, I watched with interest what was going on in the election out in California, the Proposition 22 stuff. Uh, I'd love for you to give us your thoughts about just 
the changing world of work, whatever the increase is going to be. And I do think maybe you comment on that as well. We you might not be 50% of the workforce being on demand or contractor gig workers, but it's, I think it's likely to increase over time and it has increased somewhat. Uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about kind of the social the, the contract between workers, gig workers, contract workers, et cetera, and organizations going forward. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first, I think we should start with some history and some data around the size of the on-demand workforce. It is about 25 to 30% of the labor force, and it's been that for some time. Now, it usually has its ups and downs, sometimes counter-cyclically to the economic cycle, meaning as times are bad, you use more on-demand workers because they're more variable, and as things start to pick up, you convert them sometimes to full-time workers. But you are correct. Over the last 10 years, we saw some structural shifts in the economy, and we saw market share being taken permanently, not through an economic cycle, by the on-demand labor force, about 3%. And I feel comfortable saying this because ADP's Research Institute did a very long study that I had the pleasure of participating in uh, and crafting, which looked at actual economic data, actual numbers of 1099s filed by companies versus all the other information we have on the on-demand economy is through surveys. Surveys of 5,000 people here, 6,000 people there. Great data points, but not nearly as good as tens of millions of actual data points from ADP's data lakes. And so that structural shift was important, but it, it was not a doubling of the size of the on-demand economy. Right. It went from you know between 25 and 27% to 28 to 30%. Right. That's kind of where we are now. And I would have said pre-Prop 22, and we should not diminish the fact that Prop 22, in my mind, is a game changer. Because pre-Prop 22, I would have said, you have these huge tailwinds in the on-demand economy, things really pushing it forward, which are companies wanting to be more flexible, wanting to be more agile, wanting to have a source of different talent, because a lot of, com- a lot of workers only work on an on-demand construct. And that was pushing it forward. But pushing it back was the regulatory environment. And every time Uber got sued or when AB5 came out or another state passed something else, it would push and a lot of people would convert their 1099s to W-2s. Because here's, here's what I'll tell you. As the person running work market for so long, I have never once been in a meeting where somebody said, hey, we're going to take all of our W-2s and turn them into 1099s. Therefore, we need your software. And I promise you this, if they were doing it, I'd get that phone call. I was the piece of software to do that. Still are, I think, the only piece of software to do that. I've never been in that meeting, but I've been in this meeting a lot. You know, we are actually going to stop using 1099s. We're getting increasingly uncomfortable given the regulatory environment. Okay, I understand that. Mm -hmm. That meeting I've been in a lot. And so I thought if you had to, if I had to bet between those tailwinds of corporate, you know, desire to have a flexible workforce and the regulatory environment as the headwinds, I would have bet the regulatory environment was gonna win and that we probably would see a slight shrinking of the on-demand labor force over the next 10 years. Prop 22 substantively changed that. We will see how it fully shakes out, but this is a much more clear definition of who is an on-demand worker, who is a gig worker, who is a freelancer, and who isn't. And I will tell you this, having sat with CEOs, CHROs for years, talking about labor force transformation, companies just want a clear set of rules, right? We would have tremendous 
economic activity from just a clear set of rules because companies right now are still a little scared. And Prop 22 was a big step in the right direction to getting a clear set of rules. Jeff, I, I, that's an interesting take on it. And I appreciate you addressing it because I'm, I'm fascinated by it as well. And I talked about it for a while on another one of our shows that we do. I, I'd love to address one other element of kind of the, even a modest increase, but still even a modest increase of 3%. That's uh, seven or five million workers, right? It's a lot of people, right? In the United States, right? And so uh, I just did a show a couple of weeks ago with Professor Peter Capelli from Wharton about an article he did in HBR, which was kind of a contrarian viewpoint, let's say, uh, not just about on-demand, but really about the influence and the impact of technology in workplaces with this idea of, hey, over-optimizing work, work processes, people's kind of workflows. There's some downsides to that. And in that piece, he talked very specifically about, I'm not so sure an increase in on-demand or even the prevalence of on-demand workers is a good thing either. And his, he postulated it was more about dedication, loyalty, institutional knowledge, the ability to go above and beyond, right, to help your quote-unquote employer. All these things he felt anyway were not really likely or sometimes even allowed, right, you get back to the regulations in an on-demand kind of uh, arrangement. I'd love for you to maybe share your thoughts on that and just in terms of, hey, what are the benefits to the organization from this on-demand workforce itself and, and your thoughts on it? So a lot of thoughts, a lot of thoughts. I'll try to keep this organized, but I'm sure I'm going to go off the rails here. Um, the first thing is I would start with data. And we can look at the surveys from McKinsey, from the Freelancers Union, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it would tell us that 80% of the people in the on-demand economy wouldn't take a full-time job if it was offered to them. They like this. They want to be doing it. Now, all of these surveys were done during periods of economic expansion. So I'm not sure what those surveys would tell us right now. So I, I accept that counterpoint to, to that data set, right? We need to think about what context is taken in. The reason that a company wants to engage an on-demand workforce is they can scale it up and scale it down. They want to be able to be as variable with this biggest, the biggest cost most companies face, which is their labor. They want to turn it from a fixed cost to a variable cost. Right. Of course right. they do. That's what companies want to do. No question. But it also gives them access to different labor pools. Being able to work with people in a more flexible work environment, which is where the world is going, lets people that can't commit to a nine to five job because childcare, because of taking care of elderly parents or whatever reasons they have, it allows them to work at places that they wouldn't get a chance to work at before. I'll give you an anecdote, and I'm going to imagine that the professor is filled with anecdotes, and I, I really don't like anecdotes. I think they're terrible, and that being said. But that being said, let me tell you a story. Okay. So I was on the phone with the CHRO um, of one of the major law firms in the world, and she made the statement, you know what? COVID's going to end up really fundamentally changing the way we work because in order to work here before, you had to be in this office nine to five, five days a week. And therefore, there were pools of people that were amazing that we couldn't employ. And she cited, you know, the prototypical MBA mom, or in this case, you know, JD mom, the mom that went, went to law school, super smart, super, but had some kids and was taking time off the labor force, but could work 20 or 30 hours a week. They wouldn't touch her. Yeah. They would not touch her before. And now they will. 
because the partners the firm finally thought realized what we've all known for a long time that remote workers are just as productive and all these other things before because they were forced into it they said oh wow well this is actually working maybe we should start to employ all those people that you keep telling us in hr we can't get because we won't be flexible so flexible work arrangements i think History shows the more flexible any entity is, whether it's a person, whether it's a company, whether it's a country, the more flexible your society is, the better it is at adapting to change and the happier most people are. And I can't imagine that that's, that won't be shown to be true as we continue with this on-demand workforce. I would have to agree with you on that. And I think also not only does it open it up to those people, maybe even locally, who would have had those limitations on their availability, but also now you can hire people across the country, across the globe, that maybe you would have been really close to before. I wonder, um, you know, we're, we're talking about a little bit about the future of work too, and we want to get your opinion on that, but what would you say to some of the people who are not yet in the workforce, right? So for those of us who are raising teenagers or, you know, early 20s that are still, you know, finishing at the university, um, because I get this question a lot. I have twins that are 17, and so you know, I, I often tell them, they see how I work, and I often tell them the jobs that you will be doing probably don't exist yet. But what about all the kids that aren't hearing that yet? What, what kind of message do you have for maybe the, not only just the future of work and where it's going, but what, how are we going to prepare the, the students to be ready for the future of work? So I generally have two things that I will say to my nieces and nephews. One is, is flippant. The other is, is more serious. One is learn to code. Just, just learn to code. <laughs> if you don't know how to code, stop what you're doing and start learning to code. And so I keep impressing that upon them of which none of them are listening to me because they don't really listen to me about anything I say to them, but that's okay. Um, the second is a phrase that I would say a lot of people think is an overused phrase and I would argue it is not used enough and that is to be a lifelong learner. And you know, people have really started to embrace that now, and I like it. Now you're starting to see the backlash, like, oh, lifelong learner. The time at which a skill becomes irrelevant used to be 30 years. You'd get 30 years to take that skill and have a lifetime of employment with it. Slight tweaks here and there, but for the most part, you were good. Between 18 and 24, you'd learn your occupational skills, either on the job, an apprenticeship, at a technical school, obviously, or college, and then boom, you're good for the rest of your career. Now, four to six years on average before a skill becomes unmonetizable. And so everybody has to constantly be a lifelong learner. That doesn't mean they need to learn how to code, but it means they need to constantly be looking at the market at what skills are in demand. And so that needs, that necessitates a mindset, right? And a lot of people don't have that. And so instilling that mindset that you will have to be, you know, adapting to constant change and constantly learning and updating, that kind of mindset I think will serve anybody entering the labor force very well. I'm so glad you said that. And I'm glad we didn't talk about this in advance because I think you're right. And I think that's why the people even currently who might be out of work due to, you know, the pandemic and, and just the changes in, in the jobs that they're they were working in, I find that a lot of people are, it's very hard for them to think I have this set of skills and I can use it in a different industry, in a completely different role. And they just can't get past it. I think the people that can are the ones who are going to scoop up those jobs much more easily in the future. 
right? You are 100% right. I don't have a lot of hard data on this, and I'm sure you guys have gleaned already. I don't like speaking on something unless I've had a lot of hard data. <laughs> that being said, we know pre-COVID that there were about 7 million people employed, unemployed in the United States. Right now, there are about 17 million people, people that want, that could in theory be working. Um, but pre-COVID, there were 7 million, and there were like 8 million job openings on average pre-COVID, which is to say there were more job openings than there were people looking for work. And the number one reason, from my understanding, again, I don't have hard data on this, was just apathy. Like, uh, I don't want to go and get retrained on something. Because people perceived it to be too hard. It's one of the reasons that I love some of these VR training modules where you can just sit at home, put on a headset, and it's like you're playing a game. Yeah. And then, you know, 30, 40 hours later, you actually have the new skill and you're capable of going and starting at a company. That is mind blowing that that can happen. And that will change this idea that people say, look, I don't wanna to go to the community college and take a class at night. All right, I kind of get it. I mean, I, I, I in some ways don't get it because you need a job and you want a job and people feel more fulfilled having a job. Nobody wants to be on the government dole. People want to work, they want a job, they don't want a handout. But the things that it took to go get a job before to get retrained weren't things that people were willing to do in mass and hopefully vr technologies and other kinds of online programs and online education will help change that mindset but it does require a mindset of theirs to change which is all right what's the new thing i'm going to learn i'm going to learn i'm going to learn and then i'm going to learn again and then i'm going to learn again well, and for the employer also to meet them halfway, because I think employers, we tend to, when we just focus on jobs um, as they exist today, we're not thinking of all of the different peoples with different degrees or different experiential background or whatever the case might be from different industries. You know, we sometimes get really siloed in our thinking as well as the people doing the hiring. So I think it's sort of a mishmash of both have to happen. You are completely correct, and people were, are very yeah. hung up on a four-year college degree. 50% of job requirements have a four-year college degree as a requirement, but only 34% of the labor force has a four-year college degree. So we right. already have this huge mismatch that can't actually logically get filled. And so people need to start changing and thinking more about the skills that we need. Yes. And that starts with understanding what the skills you have in your organization are. I will tell you this, on work market, I could tell you very specifically the skills that every single person has on that platform. We can run data query after data query because we have the data. Right. We know more about the on-demand workforce on the work market platform than almost any company knows about their full-time workforce. And I've never met anybody. <laughs> I've never met a single worker on that platform. And yet I know more about them than any single company in the United States or anywhere in the world knows about their full-time employees because of the data structuring and what I keep, the information mm -hmm. I keep on that, employee, on that worker. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the future of work, really. Just one last one last thing for me and we'll let you go. One more thing. Cause well, the future of work, I'm <laughs> glad she said that because we started the conversation kind of laughing a little bit about the future of work pundits, uh, et cetera. I wanted you to just comment about something that's in the book, uh, Jeff, which is this future of work challenge, right? Where you invited lots of other people to share their vision, right? Of what work, workplaces, et cetera, is going to be like in the next 20 years. I'd love for you to just describe what that's about and, and why you decided to include that. Well, I decided to include it first and foremost because writing a book is really hard. And if I figure I could Tom Sawyer this and get a bunch of other people to write, and I maybe I would actually finish the book because I was writing this thing, Steve, for like seven years. Okay. And so, um, I look, I have the pleasure of being an advisor to the X Prize, 
as they do a bunch of future work prize uh, uh, prizes and, and think about things. And so I use the model of that and I put up 10 million of my own money to entice some of the greatest thinkers in the future of work to write their piece as to what they think the world looks like in 2040. And, you know, look, these are people that are incredibly busy and the fact that they even took my phone calls was, was amazing. And they had to spend a lot of time. And a lot of people that wrote didn't get put into the book because mm -hmm. we, we had a calling. I could only put 20 in. Uh, and these people are just amazing and they're labor leaders and they're CHROs and they're CEOs and they are people at staffing, you know, heads of staffing firms and all kinds of people involved in really shaping the future of work. And so it was such a gift uh, that they were willing to contribute. And so I'm excited to do this prize. But unlike the X Prize, this is a prize 20 years from now. So. Right. This will be the one context in which I root for inflation. <laughs> awesome. Nice. I thought that was just a fascinating project to include in the story, but also great to get different perspectives as well, right? When you're, it's great to sort of opine about what you think, but it's also great to hear, hey, let's hear what some other folks are thinking about this too and kind of level set a little bit. But anyway, this has been a great conversation, Jeff. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Jeff Wald, the, uh, the author of the End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. You can get that uh, pretty much the only place you can get books these days. I'm sure it's available other places as well. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Super fun today. Thanks for spending some time with us. This was so incredibly fun. You guys have inspired me to maybe go try coffee again. There you go. Oh, if so you do, good. <laughs> let, let us know. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's saved my life a number of times, including this morning. Uh, oh Trish, good stuff. Good to see you. Good stuff. Good to see you as well. Awesome. So we will let everybody go. Uh, remember, everybody subscribe. HRHappyHour.net is where you get all the information, all the shows, videos, the Alexa show, this show, everything else. Subscribe. Tell us how you did. If you like the show, please rate and review as well. So Jeff, for Jeff Wald, for Trish McFarlane, my name's Steve Bose. Thank you for listening to the HR Happy Hour show. We will see you next time and bye for now.